Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. This amazing stranger from the planet Krypton, the man of steel. Superman! Hello and welcome to another episode of Superman Lives. I am your host, Chris Moe, and this is uh, the first of two Halloween-themed or, well, horror-slash-Halloween-themed episodes of the show. And uh, October, of course, is one of my favorite months. I may have shared this before. Many of my favorite people in my world, in my life, my wife, my oldest daughter, my mother, my brother, uh, and a niece, and also a sister-in-law, all born in this month of October. So um, it's a wonderful time to celebrate the people that are uh, most important in my life. And also I have, since I was a kid, have loved Halloween and horror and monsters and all of that. So this episode really does tie into that uh, as this Superman story we'll be talking about is very much in that vein and is a very fun story from a unique period in Superman's history. It's in this kind of I don't know if this has ever been used as uh, a title or, or a name for this era, uh, but I like it. This Twilight era of Superman, where it's really in between the onset of a brand new era and the end of another one. And we'll talk about that in detail when we get into the episode proper. I want to take this opportunity, as always, to welcome any new listeners we have to Superman Lives. Great to have you. Thanks so much for listening. I also want to thank all of my continued listeners, my returning listeners, uh, for your continued support and um, and encouragement. And I love reading your comments. Now, the, the main, in fact, the only so far place I'm able to read comments is from YouTube, where I do upload these episodes as well. Uh, and so many of you have commented there, and I thank you very much. I will read a few comments before we, we uh, take our first break and then come back for the, the main segment of the show. But I wanted to share this with you. This is from Anchor.fm, which is the host of Superman Lives, the software, the site that I use to host. And um, I'm, I'm looking today. I didn't realize I had access to this until today, in fact. Uh, I, I want to read to you some of the statistics that I have found about the episode thus far. Now we're in our, uh, I guess we're technically in our sixth episode, really, if you count zero. Um, and so we're, this is episode six. Uh, really, it's episode five in, with that episode zero counting as zero, right? Um, so the geographic location I thought was very fascinating, and I want to take this opportunity to say hello again to anyone who maybe is listening yet again in this episode from these geographic locations. 64% of the listeners of Superman Lives from the United States, which is not surprising, um, but the others were, and, and that's no means uh, a mean a way to diminish the United States listeners just sharing that with you there that uh, 64% come from the US Malaysia 13% Brazil 7% Canada 7% France 3% and then Germany Colombia uh, and the United Kingdom, 1%. So I welcome all of you from uh, over the airwaves here, so to speak, uh, across this globe. It's, what's, it's such a wonderful thing, this technology that we have today and, and the beauty of the podcast that we are able to share our um, common love and interest in anything, in particular Superman, uh, the iconic Superman here on this program. So great to have you, and hopefully those numbers stay steady there and we get new locations and more people in all of those locations. Also, I'm able to see what platforms are being used by the listenership here. The overwhelming majority uh, of people listening to Superman Lives do so through Apple Podcasts, which of course is how I listen to my podcasts, uh, the ones that I follow primarily, and that that's mainly because of ease. I generally only listen to podcasts when I'm on the road. I do commute back and forth. I'm in the car about three hours uh, a couple of days a week, and so that's where I get in my podcast listening, and I use Apple Podcasts. Um, however, I thought this was interesting. That was 49%, 39% listen through Amazon Alexa, which I, I was uh, intrigued to learn there, and that's kind of neat to think that people are hearing me through their Alexa device. 
Also, 7% listen through the web browser and another 5% listen through Spotify. Of course, Spotify owns Anchor.fm, and so it makes sense that there would be some listenership happening there. Superman Lives is available also, of course, on uh, through iTunes. That would be Apple Podcasts and is on YouTube, though those numbers are not represented here because I upload the audio with uh, a static image and put it up there just to get some more listenership, but it isn't counted uh, here. It doesn't go back through the RSS feed here. Nevertheless, uh, no matter how you listen, I am very glad to have you aboard, and I hope that you will uh, consider contacting me. The best way to get in touch with me regarding this program, Superman Lives Podcast at gmail.com. And I check that once a week. Um, and uh, if you have any thoughts, any questions, perhaps you have some interesting ideas you'd want to share for episodes, or perhaps just some anecdotes you want to share about your own fandom. I would love to hear it and share it with our listeners here. Uh, I do want to look at the YouTube comments, which, as I said, is where I'm mainly getting um, mainly getting the uh, feedback here. And so I want to just read a couple of comments here um, from YouTube here where you will find not only episodes of Superman Lives, uh, but you will also find my other video content. I just released a video reviewing a Halloween horror mask, or a horror Halloween mask, I should say. Uh, and so if that's something that you think might be interesting, then please do tune in. On the latest episode of Superman Lives, prior to this one, I should say, um, we do have some comments, and I want to read a few of those. Uh, we have Brandon Scott, who wrote, I strongly agree with you about not wanting any more superhero adaptations in live-action films or television, fan man. Personally, I think there's just too many limitations on how comic book characters or stories can be properly portrayed on screen. And um, and I agree with that, and I, I feel, you know, I was talking to Professor Geek, who some of you may know, uh, and we were talking on Facebook this past week, in fact, and I, I'm, I'm in a good place, I think, um, when, I, when you sit down and really consider the wealth of faithful, rich adaptations that Superman and the DC Universe have had. We've had some, I think, legendary, uh, timeless adaptations in the form of for example, with Superman, of course, Richard Donner and Christopher Reeve. And then we have the, um, I believe, the, the first um, Tim Burton film especially. And then we go uh, to Mask of the Phantasm, my favorite Batman film, theatrical release film, uh, which, of course, is animated. And, and it, I mention that because Brandon is mentioning animation. And I feel, though, uh, that, that, you know, like you're saying, Brandon, there are no limitations to what animation can do. We are really constrained by live action as far as we get with our special effects they really won't take us to the places that animation can and animation really captures the sense of a comic book brought to life and so i would prefer to watch that um and then when we consider the the richness of the dcau uh and it's a complete universe you know it begins really with batman the animated series but there's chronologically there are stories set uh, earlier in that we we see some of that early version of that universe in various ways throughout all the series and we even go into the future of it kind of get an idea of how it might it might uh, not end, but the, the final chapter or the closing chapter of some of these characters and how they're going to be doing in the future. And uh, so what a rich universe. I don't need anything else, personally. And, and so I'm not, I'm not criticizing, judging anyone who, who enjoys the live action. I just I, I feel a good degree of peace at this point in my life with that. And uh, my goal, as I think I've shared before, uh, is to get as much of this as I can on physical media, in fact, relevant, to Warner Brothers, of course, owning the DC Comics characters and copyrights. It's something I read recently on social media that someone had gone to watch, I believe, Game of Thrones. They had purchased a couple of the seasons, uh, and they went to watch them on HBO Max and only uh, to find a notice telling them that the episodes were no longer available due to rights issues. And it may not have been Game of Thrones. I'm not sure what, what show it was, but... There was no refund, and there was no date as to when these would be uh, accessible again. So I would encourage you, um, faithful super listener, go ahead and buy your most beloved material on physical media because 
it it is a tricky situation that I don't think we fully realize has not been fully um, figured out when it comes to the rights and the purchases of digital content. I think that's very different, perhaps, say, than when you buy a physical copy of something and they give you a digital copy. Part of that. This, though, with television series and streaming, I think that's all still fairly uh, growing, developing territory. And so it, it may not be quite as uh, secure or... Um, as uh, certain as we think. I also want to read a comment from a very good friend of mine, old time, old time friend, but we go back all the way back to middle school. My good friend Justin Vize wrote, great episode. As a middle of the road Superman fan, I think you're spot on. I caught some of the DC movies and by and large, they were just boring. I want these movies and characters to be great, but it always feels like they're providing characters uh, that weird parodies that no one can like as a hero. Of them, I liked well enough the first Wonder Woman and didn't even mind the first Aquaman, though I wasn't expecting much, much so I was, it was easy to avoid disappointment. Love the topic, and I don't think anyone who looks to a character as a hero wants anything that doesn't portray, struggle with, and ultimately try to live out their power as a virtue in some way, shape, or form. And uh, beautifully said, Justin, beautifully written. Thank you so much for commenting. Completely agree with you. Um, we, we have a hunger on a human level, a very basic human level, for heroes. And, um, and it is only in this kind of, and certainly it's not limited to modern times. We've seen it throughout history, but we see it very particularly now. And I think it's a, a wider, uh, maybe exposure to this kind of thinking, but we have this, this postmodern deconstructionist, uh, maybe concept being taken to radical extremes. We see it in academia, and we see it even with science and other issues that are that are being kind of uh, addressed in, in ways that in the past we would have looked maybe at a little bit more objectively. And so now we're seeing uh, all of the subjectivism. And I think people want a hero who's a hero. Um, and that, that isn't boring, and that isn't, um, that isn't in some way less engaging or exciting or thrilling or fun than the, uh, the character that is maybe a little less of the clear-cut hero. But when it comes to Superman, I always scratch my head because we have gotten Superman, really, in a lot of ways, from the Marvel Cinematic Universe in the form of Captain America. Now, Cap and Superman have always been very close in spirit. And and when you look at Steve Rogers, as portrayed by Chris Evans in those early films particularly, that is very much Superman. And uh, it, it's really surprising that Warner Brothers will not allow Superman to be the way that he should be. So thank you so much for your comment. I want to thank all of uh, all the rest of you who commented there. And in the interest of time, I won't be able to get to everybody's comments. But I thank you for your feedback. And um, it means a great deal. So we're going to take a break. When we get back, we will jump right into the main segment of this episode, looking at this very unique horror-themed issue of Superman number 422 from the year 1986. More to come. Luthor has Superman trapped. He's using kryptonite to destroy his powers. Now you'll tell me why Superman peanut butter tastes so great. Never. So fresh roasted, so creamy, so yummy, that its secret will be mine, all mine. I foiled again. Just wait, Superman. I'll find out. Superman peanut butter. Its strength is its great taste. All right. We are back here on Superman Lives, and I want to start really right at the beginning of any comic, and that, of course, is the cover. Now, this cover um, is one of these It's one of these comics that, as a kid, I don't remember if I can't really tell you exactly where I first saw it. It may have been in a comic book shop, but I think more likely it was either um, in Comic Scene magazine, or it was in Wizard. It was in a periodical. I'm, I'm almost certain of it. And I remember seeing the art and being floored. And the only thing that I can think about making a whole lot of sense as to why it would have been in one of those publications back when I was reading them, uh, and back when they existed, they are sadly gone, and I, I loved both of them, um, is because Brian Bolland, the excellent artist who's responsible for this cover, uh, was being profiled. His art, of course, he was, I think, enjoying not his the height of his popularity, but certainly perhaps his success back in, in that uh, late 80s, early 90s period when he was fresh off of Alan Moore's 
The Killing Joke, and is, I think, best known for that work. And, you know, I, I, this is not a Batman podcast. Perhaps that will we will have one of those in the future from me, so we'll see what happens there. But I will say not, not at all a story that I really care for. As a kid, I did, but as I've read more Batman and as I've gotten older, I enjoy it less and less to the point where I really would not reread it at this point. What I would do is look through the art and marvel at it because it's beautiful. And uh, Brian Bolland is one of the most phenomenal artists, the most dynamic artists, I believe, in the history of the medium. He's always been one of my favorites. And as great as he is on interior art, we see much more, I think, of him on covers. And his covers have often sold comics to me that I've never really I've never read uh, or I didn't really I knew I wasn't going to read but I bought it because of the cover because it was such a stunning piece of work and we all have our artists for whom that is that's the case right that we buy it just because of that cover you know and you're like ah, the inside was okay but man this cover and that was the case with this issue so I remember that I have at least two at least two copies of Superman number 422 in the depths of my long boxes here in the in the uh, the uh, fan man as I call it fortress of fanitude here in my closet really in my office uh, in all of my uh, geez you know uh, I think I have around two maybe two and a half two thousand uh, twenty five hundred or so comic books rough estimate and somewhere in those depths I have the copies of it so I I didn't go and dig through those to find this issue I did find a scanned version of it uh, and um, and this cover has captured my imagination. It was one of the covers that, as I mentioned, I remember buying and then going through the interiors and being a little disappointed at the time as a younger reader. Well, why isn't the art inside done by the same artist? And not realizing probably, well, you know, you have different artists doing the covers sometimes. Um, and so I read it for this this um, episode because I was thinking about it. It came to mind uh, last week, and I thought, you know, I need to read that issue. For whatever reason, I haven't, and <laughs> the cover has been on my mind, and uh, I looked it up. So you see the cover here um, in the, the episode art for this particular episode is the cover, and what I think is, is so fascinating about it right as we, <clears throat> right as we get off to, to analyzing it is the black and white, but there's one color. Right, and I think that's a very stunning choice there. And this is predating, and this is certainly not somebody who invented it. Frank Miller didn't invent this idea when he did Sin City, uh, but this idea of we're going to do black and white primarily with one color that really stands out, and that is, I think, such an, uh, a really impacting uh, technique here because it does stand out. Not just that it's black and white, not just what's on the cover, but but our eyes are engaged in a way by that lack of color and then the pop of color in these two places and not only it's not just a random color really there is a a connection to the very plot of the story which i'm imagining they may have done intentionally and that is the color of red the color of blood yes and so we have this beautiful rendering of what appears to be superman in the form of a werewolf. That's right, a werewolf Superman. And this isn't your typical Lon Chaney Jr. or even your later uh, fully developed um, Rick Baker, you know, from uh, American Werewolf in London werewolf. This is is kind of mid-transformation. Uh, I, th- I feel like this is a werewolf that is not quite as hairy um, and, and is just more of the of the human face going on, but certainly a lot of the features have been regressed. There's that, if you remember that scene in American Werewolf, as the transformation is happening, the snout is lengthening. This reminds me of that. Uh, But what's shocking is, you know, you look at it and you think, is that Superman? And then you see there's a spit curl there in the hair, kind of, and you go, this is Superman. And why is he a werewolf? And then why is it in black and white, except for the red in the eyes, and then the red in Superman. So very, very provocative cover, uh, very engaging. Um, and uh, I, I just, it's one of my favorite pieces of comic book art ever. And if you look at the S Shield, you can tell, well, we're looking at Bronze Age or Silver Age Superman, given but the size and the, the curvature of the lines there. Uh, and it, it is definitely of its time in that regard, but it is a timeless piece. It's beautiful, it's frightening. It, and it, I think also, this idea that of all characters who we would see in the form of a monster, Superman, not quite something we 
we consider. Whereas in the Silver Age, he he did, if you remember, Cersei. I believe was it Cersei? I think it was Cersei had had turned him into a lion man. We're familiar with the ant-headed uh, Superman, I believe, from Red Kryptonite Radiation. Uh, but here, instead, we have a Superman who is a monster, uh, a werewolf. And so that's just the cover. So maybe you've read this issue, maybe you've picked it up before, and uh, you've never gotten beyond the cover. We're going to do that now as we get into the story itself. So let's talk about what I called, now this was just my uh, attempt at a, at a Silver Age title for this comic, The Super Wolfman of Krypton. Uh, this is Superman 422. The real title of the comic is Dark Moon Rising, written by Marv Wolfman, with art by the late great Kurt Swan. Larry Malsted, I believe is how his last name is properly pronounced, is doing the ink work along with Tom Yates. And I remember when I saw his name here, uh, I immediately remembered uh, Larry Malsted from his time on Amazing Spider-Man in the, I guess that would have been the early 90s with Mark Bagley, one of my favorite comic book artists, in particular, one of my favorite Spider-Man artists. Um, and, you know, up there with McFarlane for me, uh, just his time on, and of course, exceeding McFarlane on Spider-Man and the impact he had, much of his work inspired by McFarlane's style, but then he made it his own and and has made a more lasting impact, to me at least, uh, on Spider-Man in, in some ways that McFarlane didn't. So um, every time I see Larry Molstead's name, I, I'm immediately thinking of his inking, and he, was, he and Bagley were a great team on those amazing Spider-Man issues. Now, of course, when um, a Superman connection here, when Mark Bagley went on to do Ultimate Spider-Man, his inker there, I believe in the beginning, and it may have been throughout the run, I don't recall, but for a time it was Art T-Bear. Many of us know Art T-Bear from his Superman art, again in that era, well this would have been the late 80s, and he did uh, one of the covers of the Death of Superman, that saga, that six issues, that I think everybody will know immediately. It was, I believe, the third issue, and it may have been an Action Comics cover, I don't recall offhand, but it's Superman and Doomsday, uh, grappling and the right right in front of the sign that that tells you Metropolis is this many miles away. It was just part of that genius buildup to the excitement, this countdown, I should say, to that that um, climactic battle in Superman 75. R.T. Bear, I believe, did the pencils and the inks on that, but I could be wrong. He may have just done the inks. Nevertheless, another of my favorite artists of that time. So this issue came out in 1986, which when we, we talk about Superman and we talk about DC Comics, many fans um, know that that, and comic book historians maybe who aren't fans, will know that that was a tumultuous time in the sense that DC Comics had, uh, since 1982 thereabouts, decided that there needed to be radical changes to the DC Comics universe. Now, particularly, the people we're talking about were the executives at Warner Brothers saying the comic book division needs some kind of change. And there was the belief, and I still think this was an erroneous belief, but no one, I, I was... Not of age in 82 for them to ask me. I was six, uh, I think. Let's see, how old would I have been? Yeah, I was six years old. Uh, they didn't call and say, hey, six-year-old, what do you think? And I wouldn't have had an opinion as fully formed as I do now 40 years later. But I, I think certainly in hindsight it's easy to say some of this, so you know, you may feel differently if you were older reading it as it happened. But I think it's a case that we often see today, and I, I think DC Comics has done this more times than once, and that is this idea of uh, we're not going to choose both and, we're going to go with either or. And that's sad because I think that everyone suffers with either or. Um, and, I, and I think the DC Universe, honestly, has never been the same uh, since Crisis on Infinite Earths, which I think is a tremendous uh, epic story, one of the greatest ever told in the history of comic books. But its, its impact, personally, to me, has been, I think, more negative than positive. And uh, perhaps I'll get into that in more detail in a future episode. Um, but I love the post-crisis era, don't get me wrong, and certainly things even after that post-crisis era. But I feel like there was a middle ground that could have been achieved. And I bring that up only because it's relevant to this issue. Dark Moon Rising is set during this, what I called earlier, the twilight period in the Superman books, where um, you have the Crisis on Infinite Earths, issue 12, where the five Earths, right, five Earths have survived 
because they've been really protected by the the and I forget who it's been years since I've read Crisis, uh, but I believe the Spectre and and perhaps Alexander Luthor had been instrumental in preserving five Earths or at least their their um, their uh, their inhabitants, and that was Earth One. Earth 2, well, Earth 1 was still there, if memory serves. And then eventually it would, there were none, right? Earth 1, Earth 2, Earth 3 uh, had been destroyed. So uh, Earth 4, I should say. Earth S and Earth X. And, of course, Earth 1 uh, is our traditional, then at least, the central modern version of the DCU. We had Earth 2, which was the Golden Age uh, version. And then we had Earth 4. The Charlton characters, characters were there. Blue Beetle, etc., uh, and then we had uh, in Earth S we had the Captain Marvel family, the real, the original Captain Marvel and his family, and that became eventually known as Earth Five and later multiverse iterations. And then we had Earth X, which became known as Earth Ten in later uh, iterations of the multiverse, and that's where the Freedom Fighters were. These five Earths combined into one continuity. Folks who are critical of that, and I, and I, again, even though I started reading in that period, as I've read more comics and read more about DC Comics through the years, the decades, uh, it, it is very clear to me now how much continuity damage was really done. Uh, and there was really no way around it. So well, there was, but that, that was not the mandate um, given from, from on high. So you had this idea of these five Earths are going to be combined into one, and so that really screwed up the Legion of Superheroes, and it, it really screwed up um, Superboy, who is responsible in a way for the Superboy of Legion of Super, uh, the Legion of Superheroes, or directly, he is directly responsible for their creation, uh, or Superman is. But all those adventures gone, and then you really also saw a lot of things in the, sil- in the uh, Golden Age messed up because now it's a combined Earth. What I think might have been just better, and this just throw in my little little bit of my opinion on the multiverse here, because I love the multiverse. It's one of the things about DC Comics, as I talked about in, in episode zero, as a young reader, um, that I always loved because I just thought it was it was so cool that there were multiple versions of these characters. They're so cool you can't have just one version of them, and those versions were distinct. They were they were different, uh, which I thought was was really cool as well. A lot of story possibility there. So. I don't know, maybe instead of combining them, what if only five Earths remain? You no longer had infinite Earths, but you had a you had five DC slash DC universes, but for a long time anyway, the DCU in that period, right up to eighty five, was comprised of crossovers and this idea of traveling from this earth to this earth that was pretty commonplace. So if you'd gone down to only five Earths, you still could have had the crossovers and all of that would have been preserved. Superboy would have been there, the Legion, and you'd still had Earth too. Nevertheless, you know, it's Monday morning, Monday morning quarterbacking, uh, and so just my my two cents on this. Dan Jurgens famously wanted to bring back at least Earth Two, as a result of Zero Hour, and was not allowed to do so by DC, or at least Warner Brothers executives did not allow that at the time. And it would have again that would have solved a lot of continuity issues. But here, this issue is set. During that time where if you've gone back and read those issues or you read them when they they were released, it was interesting because issue 12 happened. The New Earth had been created, as it's called generally by fans, New Earth. Folks a little more critical of that time call it Clutter Earth, right, because it was cluttered with continuity issues and and, uh, problems. Um, And so you have the characters there, some of whom are from other Earths that are gone now. and, And so they shouldn't still be there or remember things, but there wasn't... The complete reboot, I guess you could say, the effects of the crisis had not yet taken full uh, root. So we are looking at a Bronze Age Superman. WGBS is not part of this. So Superman, Clark Kent is, is not a, a reporter for WGBS. He's at he's uh, back at the Daily Planet with Lois and Jimmy who are in this uh, issue. And it is very straightforward, a timeless Superman issue with a few exceptions which I'm going to get into Um, and it could have been I think made into a very fun adaptation let's say in Superman the animated series or maybe even live action you know back let's say Lois and Clark could have done something very fun with with this kind of an idea so let's talk about Dark Moon Rising Um, and and 
it, I'm not going to spoil this. I know you're thinking it's a 40-plus or almost 40 years, I guess, uh, old issue. But I do want to encourage you to go and find it. It is worth the read, and it's worth the hunt. It does have some flaws, but it's such a fun book. It's also got a tragic character in it and kind of a tragic ending. Uh, and yet at the same time, it it is um, an inspiring ending. And it's something that you would want to read in a Superman comic. So just to give you the overview... Uh, we start off, now we have that black and white cover with that spot of red, as you recall, and that, that should, I think, recall to you the idea of the black and white monster movies of the Universal era and other film studios as well. And so we have, as we open the issue, it is Metropolis, and we have a man being chased into the sewers of Metropolis, right, he's into the subway areas of Metropolis by what appears to be uh, a, a, a gang. And uh, not not like a street gang, but a, a gang of people, group of people chasing him in there. And then we see this is a werewolf. Uh, and he is confronted by them, cornered by them. And in the process of fighting, trying to save uh, his his own life, he we see he doesn't want to take life. You know, we're, we're told by our, our third-person narrator here that he doesn't want to take anybody's life. He's, he's a werewolf, and he's trying to control that, which I think is very interesting, right off the bat, very interesting way to go with something that, that even in 86 was kind of like, oh, it's a werewolf. This, we've seen this kind of story, but I thought that was a very compelling idea. So Wolfman, and let's just look at this, too, the irony. Marv Wolfman, right, <laughs> is giving us uh, an, a story about a wolf man right so i've always wondered about that uh and of course not wondered but you know marv wolfman of course also wrote a lot of the marvel horror um books uh of that that era earlier than this era of course 1986 so that's a nice fun touch we get that sense of the the townspeople going after the monster but then another monster appears at least to the werewolf the monster is a subway train, and the monster feels that uh, the the werewolf feels this is a monster with two giant eyes, and it's making this horrible sound, and the sound is painful to the werewolf, right? The horn, I guess. So he jumps into where the conductor is, smashes through the window of the cab there, and the train is now going off. It's a runaway train, and of course, many lives could be lost. Superman hears this with his supervision. He hears the uh, police band. Uh, report on this, and he flies down to take care of it. He flies into the uh, into the part of the train where the werewolf is, tries to immediately go and fix things, and is struck by the werewolf. And we are stunned to see he is injured. He's cut on the face. Ah, so we know, though, those of us that know Superman, other than Kryptonite, he's also susceptible to magic, right? Just as anybody would be. So he's able to save the train because the werewolf runs off. And then he's he's perplexed by this, flies off to the Fortress of Solitude, has an analysis done of the blood and of, the, of his blood and also um, the scratch because he deduces it's, there's no kryptonite in the claws, so this must be magic-related. Could this really be a real werewolf? Doesn't, doesn't really believe or accept that at first, um, but he, he can't find any other conclusion. Then we go back to the Daily Planet where we have Clark Kent... Um, uh, we have Clark Kent appearing there with bandage on his face and uh, saying that, oh, I cut myself shaving. Lois, meanwhile, is telling Clark and Jimmy that she's going on a date with an actor, a movie star. Jimmy says he's a big actor. Uh, and his, I forget, I think his his initials are JJ, JJ Wyatt, I believe is the name of the actor. And he he's just in the biggest movie of the year, Jimmy says, that has made $125 million dollars Get this in four weeks, and those are some those are you know cute 1986 numbers because today some movies aren't even made for that amount of money. So it's interesting to see that that was a kind of fun little thing there to look back on that reference there. Uh, Jimmy also in this scene I really enjoyed because he's um, he's the Jimmy we know, but he's older. This is before the the Burn reboot, uh, and yet he's playing just that Jimmy role. There, there's very much a sense of Adventures of Superman right with George Reeves etc in this issue uh, not so much with the werewolf obviously but the, the Lois and Clark and and uh, Daily Planet and Jimmy stuff has a strong uh, influence of that and and even the, the ending especially uh, the coda to the story has a uh, straight up 
George Reeves and also Fleischer shorts in a way. So um, Jimmy mentions that, you know, he wishes he had this actor's luck being able to date, you know, somebody like Lois. But then he says, you know, I'd really be happy just with Ally Sheedy. Ally Sheedy. Now, those of us that are old enough remember Ally Sheedy from the 80s. Um, and, I, you know, I meant to look it up on IMDb, but I, I didn't do it. Let me just see really quickly what she's best known for. I remember that name uh, as a kid in the 80s. But I, I, off the top of my old man head, yeah, she was in the, uh, the Breakfast Club, and uh, let's see what else she may have been in. Other than that, that's the first thing on IMDb that comes up, is her role in the Breakfast Club. She was in War Games, Short Circuit. There we go. That's where I, I probably knew her better. I watched that movie so many times, um, and she's been in uh, several films, of course, and television programs as well uh, since then. So he mentions his, his love for Ali Sheedy, which is a nice little reference that folks in 86 would have gotten. And uh, those of us who are older will will get today. If you're reading that, you're like, who's Ali Sheedy? Well, go look up on IMDb. You'll see uh, what she's done. Inspector Henderson also makes an appearance, another Adventures of Superman uh, influence. And I guess I didn't realize until this issue, uh, I knew he was in the post-crisis comics, but I didn't realize he was also in the Bronze Age um, comics. So I don't know when, and that's something I'll have to look up now because I'm curious, when did Bill Henderson get added to the comics universe? Of course, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he got his start in Adventures of Superman um, although it's may, is it possible too that he began on the radio show? I'm asking that uh, no one will answer me because I'm here alone recording. But I will have to look that up as well. Anyway, I've always loved Jim Henderson, and uh, it was so it was great to see that. So um, Lois is saying I have this date, and uh, Jimmy says, "Be careful, Lois. I've heard he's a real wolf." Uh, okay, a little cheesy, a little. A little on the nose here, uh, but we, you know, this is that there's some of that cheese in here, um, and and then uh, she goes off on her date, and Clark is uh, looking for information now, trying to determine more about this creature, and he is um, he is has gone to the Fortress of Solitude, and uh, is going to the Fortress of Solitude, I should say, to check out his suspicions when it comes to the blood he's had his own blood tested and now he's finding wolf uh, there is in fact wolf blood in his blood okay so he's he's uh concerned as to how that could happen not not quite sure what it means then he gets contacted by inspector henderson who i guess has the phone number to the fortress of solitude hey bill can i get it uh it's pretty cool and he is told by inspector henderson uh, I'm, I'm looking through here to see my continuity here, if I'm getting this right. There are scientists from Lupus Laboratories. Now, hang on. Bit of a, bit of a, um, just, you know, might be connected to a werewolf. Lupus Labs in Metropolis. They are contacting Henderson so that he can contact Superman. They want to talk to Superman about the creature he fought the previous night. Uh, then we see Superman going off, and he sees that the creature is um, is attacking a jewelry store. Superman gets there, but the owner who is leaving with jewels has been killed. And did the werewolf kill him? Maybe he died out of fright. We don't know. It's not, not terribly clear, and that's on purpose. Um, but then Superman uh, rescues some people who are in the path of, uh, of this creature, and he is... Uh, the, the werewolf gets away, and Superman is then met, goes and meets the scientists who tell him that they had been studying, uh, all of them together, had been studying the effects of radiation and rare blood diseases, and that one of their um, scientists, Thomas Lawrence, was working with them, and they made an accidental discovery they found out that the radiated blood manifested lycanthropy, an infusion of it could literally create a werewolf. And so it's very interesting because Wolfman does a tie-in to this idea uh, that this blood type, and this is, this is right from the issue, a blood type caused by diseases in food or water, tainted blood, which may have inspired the werewolf legends of the past. So interesting that Marv Wolfman's taking this treatment of it as a scientific basis for lycanthropy, right? As opposed to it being a curse or anything of that nature. Yet at the same time, this werewolf is able to injure Superman. So if, in fact, let's just go cross-company for a second. If you have a vampire who is not supernatural, 
probably wouldn't be able to harm Superman, right? So if you look at somebody like Michael Morbius, he's a scientific living vampire, probably, uh, unless they've altered any of that. And I don't know. I haven't read anything from about Morbius since the Midnight Suns series way, way back in the 90s, which was excellent. Um, and, and I've reread that since, but I haven't read anything new since. So Superman being affected by this tells me there's something supernatural to it, right? There's got to be some element of the supernatural. Otherwise, he, he couldn't have made uh, even a, a slight scratch to Superman. So uh, they tell Superman, the scientists from Lupus, Lupus Laboratories, say that you need to find this werewolf, Thomas Lawrence, and kill him, not capture him, uh, not bring him. He's killed already, and if you don't save him by tomorrow night, the last day of the full moon, he will forever be a werewolf, and you have got to save him, and uh, not save him, kill him. Uh, and so it's very suspicious to Superman, and he's, he's uh, flying off, and he says, there's something in the back of my mind that keeps nagging me. I can't remember everything I've seen, but I'm just not fitting it into place. He doesn't really believe this, this werewolf creature is maybe as malicious and as murderous as these uh, these other these scientists are telling him, right? So he has another confrontation. He's defeated pretty soundly by the creature, um, and as he's he's well, they're fighting, and then before he's defeated by the creature, uh, instead of killing these these construction men that come in to attack the werewolf, thinking they need to help Superman, the werewolf collapses part of the building so that they are cut off from his battle with Superman, indicating that he doesn't want to see them hurt. So he, he probably isn't a killer. And it's at that point that he is able to clock Superman right hook and he's down. And this is this is one of those moments in the issue, which now a little bit of a spoiler. Uh, it And it's so unusual. And it, when I first read it, I thought, well, this is just bizarre. But it's fun. And I think it would be fun again it would have been fun in Superman the Animated Series or it would have been fun in a live action, you know, a TV episode. Probably wouldn't be done today. Uh, I don't think it would be done with that same charm, but it would have, Lois and Clark, I think you could have seen it. The werewolf defeats Superman and then says, victory demands a trophy, and his trophy is to take Superman's uniform. And not just like his cape, you know, you could say, yeah, I'm Superman's cape. It takes the whole uniform <laughs> And so when uh, Superman regains consciousness, he says, well, this is one case I'm keeping to myself because he's completely naked. <laughs> and so he has to fly off. Uh, he says, first things first, I need clothes. He flies off to a sporting goods store nearby and gets a very 80s tracksuit with uh, what appear to be yellow tennis shoes, at least, you know, this old scan here. And uh, flies off. He says, "I." He left a note for the manager. Uh, he's sure the manager will understand. He's planning to go back in the morning to pay for the clothing that he's taking. So I love that's a that's a classic Superman moment. His responsibility there. So he goes back uh, to the Daily Planet, Clark, and he's still trying to track down more information um, about this Lawrence character, this scientist. And now we find out that Lois got stood up, um, and then two dozen roses come in. And he, we find out her actor date was um, fogged in. And Lois, uh, Jimmy says, I don't know, Lois. I still hear he's a wolf. And Lois says, and tonight's my night to howl. Okay. This stuff with Lois, I'll, I'll come back to at the end. Eh, not a big fan of. But anyway, so Clark is finding out more information. He finds out that he had been told by the, the Lupus Labs scientists that the... Um, the uh, scientist who became a werewolf had gone through a divorce. In fact, they said that's probably why he wanted to take the potion, uh, the serum, to uh, gain this power. And so he flies off to talk to the ex-wife, and he is able to find out that this man, Lawrence, was a good, is a good man, would never hurt anybody, which is just another thing that is not quite right to Superman. Uh, Thomas Lawrence was a good man, he was a good husband, a good father. It just didn't work out because of his work, and he would never hurt anybody, much less kill anybody. So then Superman begins to put things together, and I'm not going to spoil the ending. And I know you're thinking, well, it's a 40-plus-year issue uh, old uh, comic, but I but I want you to go and read it. I think it's a really good read. It's very fun. It's got some great moments, some kids running up to Superman. One of them is wearing a Superman T-shirt, and he they ask for Superman's... Um, 
uh, autograph, which he gives them, of course. He even, we find out, has a spare costume. And so this, I'm guessing, the one uh, that the werewolf took is maybe his Kryptonian suit, whereas the spare one, he, he makes a comment, uh, if the spare costume holds up. So maybe it's not made of Kryptonian fabric. At any rate, I've always pictured Superman having multiples. Here he has the one, and which I guess makes sense because Silver Bronze Age, Ma Kent, you know, he and Ma Kent and, jo- and uh, Jonathan weren't able to make many of them with that Kryptonian fabric. Uh, so he this finds this out from the ex-wife, and he is able to find the werewolf scientist, right, Thomas Lawrence, and then we find out the truth that there is more to this than simply Lawrence becoming a werewolf, and we find out that the lupus lab scientists have another agenda, and then there's this fight with a group of werewolves and Superman, and it is a uh, it is a huge battle that Superman is losing. And they say if if Lawrence was able uh, to give you a problem, we will destroy you, these werewolves. And so Superman, you know, he's not doing well. Well, Lawrence had been researching a way to get rid of this blood infection, and it was to receive a powerful electric shock that that would neutralize the infection. So he uses uh, a lightning rod gets lightning from the storm, which has been brewing, gets struck, the lightning goes through the rod, and it um, immediately neutralizes these werewolves that are attacking Superman. And it sadly also has the side effect of killing uh, Thomas Lawrence, who is this this noble man who was actually um, not evil like he uh, like the other scientists had said. And so he's able really he's able to save Superman. He had started out trying to get rid of the curse, but instead decided he was going to help save Superman and and did that. Uh, so Clark Clark has written the story scientist muzzles werewolf gangs and. Um, Lois then says, I'm never dating uh, another lousy man as long as I live. And Jimmy says, don't tell me he didn't show up again. Lois said, oh, he showed, and it was all grab, 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 and grope, grope, grope. I had to punch him just so I could get room to breathe. I never repeat, never want to see another lousy wolf again. And then uh, then Clark, looking at the camera, winks at us and says, me neither, Lois. Me neither. The end written there. And then down at the end of this last page, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, as revealed by Alan Moore, Kurt Swan, and George Perez, on sale June 12th. So this was the final issue of Superman, Volume 1, in this era before Crisis, well, before the Burn reboot happened. And, of course, Superman was not canceled. It was renumbered, or renamed, rather, not renumbered, renamed as Adventures of Superman, and then Byrne had his own Superman, which started from number one, volume two. Uh, so overall, I think this is a really fun story. Uh, I, I like the Superman moments, I think, are really some of the best that you could find in a comic to give to anybody who really doesn't know continuity because you don't have to know anything about Superman here. This has everything in it. You could hand this to anybody. It's a fun story. It's got, you know, I think really good, although this issue is old. I don't I don't think this has ever been reprinted. I couldn't find it on, on Comixology or, or you know, uh, a scan of it in anywhere um, in any of those sites. Uh, I think you'd have to go to your local comic book shop or perhaps buy it on eBay. I also go to Nostalgia Zone. Dot com, assuming it's still up. It's been a few years, but I used to get a lot of my back issues from them. Uh, and it, it's, I think, a really solid comic, and it's in that it's in that time where it has, again, as I said, a timelessness. It doesn't feel of one era. It's the classic Superman in that, that tail end of the Bronze Age, really. Uh, the, only, the only thing I have a problem with is I feel like if you have Lois Lane in your comic... She doesn't have to be the center, but she should have some kind of function. She should have, uh, at the very least, she should be part of being a foil in this continuity, right, to Superman. So instead of her, she's only in three three scenes in this issue, and it's all complaining about a man. And there's even a scene, a moment where Clark says, I'm looking for information, I'm looking for this man, and she says, aren't we all? It, it feels like she's just kind of this guy-hungry uh, woman, you know, and it—it's it, not really Lois Lane to me. I don't, I don't, you know, and I guess this again, Bronze Age, had had really maybe given up on going after Clark, but still, if, what I would have rather have seen 
You know, this was a minor point, but it does kind of bother me about the issue overall. I think what I would have rather have seen is Lois finding that Clark has got a scratch, right? Uh, and that doesn't happen often, right? He doesn't get hurt or sick all that often. Well, unless he's pretending. He is injured, and uh, he's searching for something, and Lois, I think, would say, he's trying to scoop me, and I'm going to find out. Or she's on the trail of her own story, and I love, that's one of my favorite things about the Superman mythology, I love when uh, Clark and Lois are having this um, this competition, when, when they're always working against each other for the story, and they occasionally work together. It's one of the reasons that Lois and Clark... The New Adventures of Superman was one of my favorite adaptations of the character in television because I love that that sparring between them. Terry Hatcher, I thought, was fantastic as Lois, and, and Dean Cain was fantastic as Superman and Clark. They had that chemistry, and, and I've always really loved that show for that reason. I like when they're rivals, and uh, that was... You know that's been missing from a lot of recent adaptations. Um, even even in the comics, we haven't had that as much. Uh, so that's something I, I always enjoy seeing. And it would have been nice here if Lois would have been on uh, again on the trail of a different story, but starting to wonder well, what is he after and is he trying to scoop me? And maybe then she would have not gotten directly involved either with the story, but would have not just been there to to really spout these set setups for these kind of lame wolf jokes. It's like, eh, I know what you're trying to do. But this was the last issue of Superman in this era. And so to me, it might have been nice to see something a little more classic with Lois and Clark and Superman and Jimmy. It would have, it would have been nice instead of this being the way the, the, uh, the, the story went, maybe for there to be something a little... Because you have, like I said, you have this classic ending where he's winking to the camera, the breaking the fourth wall, you know, winking to the reader, which evokes Fleischer and Adventures of Superman. Um, and, you know, we've got Inspector Henderson. I think that it would have been nice if we would have had Lois have a better function. Or even this, don't, don't have Lois in here at all, right? Um, if you're not going to use her that way, just she's not there. She's out. You can establish she's on assignment, and you don't have to, to do anything more. So I, I just that, that didn't ring true for me. Um, and uh, so everything else, though, I think is great. And that doesn't destroy the story at all by far. Like, it's very enjoyable. It's fun, and it's poignant. I like this noble scientist who didn't want to kill anybody who was always fighting this werewolf kind of infection um and these these uh, scientists who want to destroy him you'll find out why they want to um and they had been lying to superman about the scientist and his motives and i just really like that he's avoiding killing anyone the whole issue and then he doesn't avoid killing himself to save superman and i thought man that's just great to see that is a superman story that nobility in a character who in a way has been inspired by superman and and uh it's nice to see superman saved Sometimes it's nice to see him saved by someone else, um, and and uh, so I really enjoy that moment. So I think it's a great issue. You can't go wrong with the art. You, the writing for the, except for the lowest stuff, I think is fantastic. And that cover, that Brian Bolland cover, is tremendous. So Superman number four twenty two. Your best bet again is going to be on eBay. Depending on where you live, you may have a very extensive back issue. Um, selection at your local comic book shop or shops you may find it there um i i know one copy no i have two copies that i got in comic shops and i've looked on ebay in the last week or so and they're not they're not terribly expensive in good condition so you may want to look there other websites maybe even on on facebook uh, there, there may be, I don't know, but I'm sure in marketplace, there are places where you can find back issues. So, um, Superman four, number 22, dark moon rising, a nice Halloween esque horror esque Superman tale for your enjoyment in this October, late October. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Again, if you want to contact me, you have any, any comments you want to make any feedback or thoughts, Superman lives podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Take care of yourselves. Stay safe and stay super.